Welcome to King of Glory Lutheran Church Education Podcast. We are a Christian community of faith located in Williamsburg, Virginia. For more information, please visit us on the web at kogva.org. So you know that this is where we are. We are journeying to Lent. And if I, if I would say this a hundred times, it wouldn't be too many times. When we think about the ways that, that Lent has been observed with, with these classic texts, with disciplines, what we're talking about is an invitation, not an obligation. So I, I want to remind us of that as we begin. Then I think that we might all just take a deep breath and turn to our study tonight. And we will open. I'll try to get out of the way. In fact, maybe I'll just sit. And we will open with this prayer that is from one of the Sundays in Lent, of the Psalm, Psalm 32. So if you would pray with me. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. In your name, amen. I'm so thankful we have the book of Psalms as a prayer book and as a hymn book. I I love to go there. I hope you heard in that psalm exactly why it would be included in the psalms for lectionary readings during Lent. We start with that admission of sin and move in a bright sadness sort of way, the bright sadness that Alexander Schreman says Lent is. We journey from darkness into light. And I, I hope you heard even that turning that happened in the Psalms that uh, then I acknowledged my sin to you. I said, I'll confess. And then all, all of this blessing flows out of that. So I hope that's what we hear tonight. We'll do a quick review and then get on with tonight's topic, which on your handout, we'll, we'll go there, but you'll see what it is. But let's remember, we've been looking at these classic texts of scripture and psalms and thinking about disciplines of Lent that have been traditional. But in all of it, we started with the idea of entering into some sort of spiritual rhythm, a rhythm in a story of God calendar. The Old Testament people, the people of Israel had a feast calendar. We'll talk about that more when we get into our our longer text for tonight with Jesus in the upper room, invited into a feast and fast cycle that gives a rhythm to life or spiritual life. And so we've been invited into that and then invited into 
landing in Lent and taking time there, a season of repentance from darkness into light. We Again, we want to make sure, and that's why I wanted that on the first night and to always talk about it, that when we talk about discipline, we want to understand that we have freedom. We have a balance between freedom and discipline. Last week, we talked about Lent's origins, how many traditions from churches all around the Mediterranean, Asia Minor, Europe, North African area in the Middle East came with their different traditions down through history, and what we have now is a 40-day Lent. Then last week, we focused on, and this is where on the first page, yes, first page of your handout. Does anyone need a handout? Michelle ran and and um, brought us a few, and maybe I'll leave them with you, Judy. If anybody else comes in, you'll be right there for them. On that first page, you see, I think I said page one, yes, the bright sadness of Lent, you see on the left-hand side of that slide the disciplines we talked about. But we really focused on fasting, and I did that because we Lutherans don't talk about it much. And, in fact, Jean had come home on Tuesday and said, boy, we talked about fasting at the men's breakfast and on Tuesday morning pancakes and said, wait, people said, boy, we, we just don't talk about that. So it was interesting to me, the morning session volunteers a lot more of their own thoughts and gets in. And this session, we, we te- and Pastor says it's the same with him, we tend to be a little more reticent. I don't know why. It's just me. We just ate. Yeah. So I'm glad you're not sleeping, I guess. <laughs> snoring. I don't hear any snoring. But after class, a few people came up, and, and someone even wrote to me later to talk about fasting and the thought. So I'm going to open it up again. For any of you who might have had an experience with, and, and people shared a little bit on, on memorizing scripture and some, uh, Peter, you, Peter, you talked about memorizing scripture? Yes. And so we had people share about some of the ways, some of the disciplines. But at first, I'd just like to ask anything you'd like to volunteer about fasting. And I know, I don't see Carolyn, and it just might be Carolyn. No, she's not here tonight. She came up and spoke. And she had mentioned fasting for health reasons. Um, Bob had had some questions about fasting. So if you want to bring that up, we'd love to have those kinds of things happen. Oh, David, thank you. Are you doing that? Okay. And I and Kay, would you be willing to talk? Okay. So if you raise your hand, Kay and Bob are over there. So we'll start there. We'll take five minutes or so. Kay. You have to push a button and get green. Yeah, me either. But Dave's a tech. Okay. Um, my only experience with fasting was actually related to um, a surgery. You put it up to your yeah. Was related to a surgery prep, and the first day I noticed all I could think about was food. I was hungry every time I smelled it. It just I I, I wanted food so bad, and probably the fact that I couldn't have it made it even worse. But I noticed that after 24 or 36 hours, I actually stopped thinking about the food as much. I didn't feel hungry. Um, But I also noticed I was more focused just in general. And so 
now every once in a while, even if for any reason, I might want to have a day where I just give my body a break. Um, or just if I need that focus, I find that that fasting will do will help me with that. And so I had brought it up with Claire, and I just wanted to share it, that if you don't have any experience with it, if you try it, I think you may find it's different than you expect. Um, it was both harder and easier than I thought, and it affected me different ways. Um. <laughs> thank, thank you. You've kind of normalized it in what you, you've said there. And, and, talk, and you're talking about a physical fast for a physical reason. And, and I really appreciate that. And, and, you know, mentioned last week, but there are many ways to approach a fast. We think of it could be called abstinence or fast, you know, giving up something for Lent. Uh, the Daniel fast, giving up the richer foods and drinks. Um, a typical fast for the Jews, for Jesus at that time, I know we have 40-day fast of Jesus, but would be either from sundown, like like we think of Muslims today at Ramadan, uh, from, well, after they can eat at night, but as soon as the sun comes up until the sun goes down, they fast. So there is a meal each day, but waiting for that, that's another kind. It could be a full 24-hour fast. From food, from what I read years ago, the body, most bodies can do up to 40 days of fasting without consuming pro, um, muscle and, and organs. But at that point, and that makes sense for us to have Jesus, Moses, talking about a 40-day fast. Water, no, going without water, three days at most. I mean, so we, we want to be wise as we think. And I'm not suggesting a 40-day fast by saying that. But I'm just saying thank you for normalizing this a little bit. And I think that's what Carolyn would say if, if she were here because you two were kind of resonating together for medical purposes, for health reasons, doing a fast. But, Bob, you had a comment. Would you like to make that comment again? If I can remember it. Let's see. <laughs> uh, no, my comment was I think you said. Hold it up to your mouth. Yeah. You said you had to have a grievance. The grievous sacred moment. And I said moment. I didn't think I had one. I was fairly happy. Yeah, and you said, what, if, what if I'm a happy person? Why would I? Yeah. And, and I guess we need a definition of grievance. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. That's good. Let me refresh for anyone who wasn't here or me. Let me refresh for myself. Scott McKnight, whom I quoted a book on fasting in an ancient Christian practices series, I can't remember who publishes it says that often if you say I'm, someone finds out you're fasting, they say, oh, what are you fasting for? Making the, 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 the out there, the thing you want, is the reason you fast. And he said that's absolutely not a biblical fast. And I'll get to this grievous thing. He says, first of all, he says that's an A plus B equals C. Something's wrong, and I want God to change it, so I fast equals C, now he does what I want. That's manipulative or possibly meritorious, one or the other. Does that is not a biblical fast. A biblical fast is, you see, a, there is a grievous sacred moment. And, and we saw the example of Moses coming down from the mountain, having been on the mountain with God for 40 days and 40 nights fasting. The two tablets in his hand, Aaron, the Levites, the people dancing 
and singing and laughing. And remember that poem, Jacob's daughters lift their skirts, dancing around the golden calf. And Moses threw a legal maneuver, a legal moment, not in anger is what commentators say, saying the covenant has been broken. And he throws the tablets down on the ground and fasts for another 40 days and 40 nights. A grievous sacred moment has happened. And the inevitable response is what McKnight calls the fast, a biblical fast. Some, just like when a loved one dies, often the physical inevitable response is, I don't want to eat. And McKnight says, so it's an A arrow to B, not plus B, the grievous sacred moment. And, and for us, in, and, and then if C comes at all, it's up to God, and we don't know what C will be, is what C will be. I'm sorry, what C might become or be evidenced as. So, Bob, to answer you, I think if we are in, we're approaching a season of looking at our sin, our own, my own, I'm, I'll put it in me. I am approaching that, that season when the church is calling me to look at my own lack of discipline, my own selfishness, my own impudence, my own arrogance, my own snappishness. Just ask a husband. The husbands can always give good lists, as wives can too, I'm sure, of what the sins are that are evidenced in a life. And, and the church says, here's a good season to take a look at that. And that would be the grievous sacred moment for me to say, I'm a sinner, and, and when I confessed my sins to you, you came along, Lord, and healed my sin, forgave my sin, and helped me to be closer to you and evidence you to people better. Does that, does that help? Thank you. Anybody else? Any, any Lenten practice that's been important for you that you'd like to share with the group before we get into tonight's thoughts. Okay, well, if you think, just put a hand up and David will run over there. I'm sure he will. Okay, so on your handout now under that bright sadness, we are going to talk about the big finale tonight. The big finale of Lent being... The, and I didn't put it up here, but it's on your handout. T-R-I-D-U-U-M, triduum, triduum, triduum. Latin for three days. I just put it there because if you're looking at something on a church website or um, you, you, you're reading something about Lent and you see triduum, you say, what? You'd Google it, I know. Okay, but I thought I'd save you Googling it and tell you. It just means three days. So the big, and besides, oh, I did put it up there. The big, that we lead to Lent in that Holy Week time. Palm Sunday is important. In fact, some, some of the Christian church celebrates the Saturday day, the Saturday of that weekend of Palm Sunday as Lazarus Saturday or Lazarus Sunday even in there. So re remembering Jesus ra raising Lazarus 
But what we get are three days, Maundy Thursday, Maundy coming from the Latin, like our word mandate, mandate, command. This is a command I give you, a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another. That's what we get Maundy When I was a kid, I called it Monday Thursday, and I probably slip into that every now and then. Good, And we're going to talk about that tonight, the upper room scene in John. Good Friday, more more typical. Um, Maybe we'll go there, and then we'll go back, okay? We we focus in Good Friday on the cross, tray or three hours. You may see a tray or service scheduled somewhere in town uh, when, when... Our kids were growing up in Flemington, New Jersey. It was the little Episcopal church with the little red door on Main Street that had a three-hour service, and local pastors came in and did their, however you divide three hours into by seven, however many minutes that was, 20-some minutes (laughs) they had. And I remember, I, I think, older kids, you came to that sometimes, but I know the younger ones who were homeschooled, the four younger ones who were homeschooled, we would go, and of course, this little church, and it's Good Friday, and you want them to be absolutely. So I would always bring paper and crayons, and I was always amazed at what they would draw. Just like we, we you know, encourage our kids in our, in our services today, the, the spiritual insights that they were actually listening when I thought they were just scribbling. But a three-hour service focusing on the seven last words on the cross, a tenebrae service, a service of darkness, Usually, I mean, at night on Good Friday. Our, I think that our Monday Thursday service here ends with silence, as does a Good Friday. That's that's a practice: silence, meditation, fasting. Let's talk about Monday Thursday. This. Now I can't remember what this is. It's in my notes, but I can't remember whose, whose work this is. And it's supposed to be up there. And apparently I didn't do it. You see Jesus giving the Last Supper to the disciples. I wanted to find a good one of foot washing, and I did not. When I grew up, Maundy Thursday, I, I can't remember if that's, I know for, for our kids in New Jersey, I think that's when confirmands who had been confirmed on Palm Sunday received their first Holy Communion. So the focus was on Holy Communion. Um, But I also recall when one of our pastors began a practice of foot washing. And and that is really the scene from which we get. Have any of you been part of a? Yeah, yeah. Pastor Keener, it's laughing. Do you want the mic? No. Okay. Yeah, I knew. Does a pastor ever refuse a mic? And Cynthia, I told them about the LHM. So the, cu- the custom at the Lutheran Church of the Ascension in Atlanta was that um, I would wash the head elder's feet. And this was Earl Nolting. And he, he had the gnarliest feet I have ever <laughs> seen in my life. His wife, Gladys, made sure they smelled good. But they were, it, yeah. But we did that as, on a regular basis every yeah. was part of Monday, yeah. Thursday. And we're going to get into why. We're going to get into why. Pastor Freilich mentioned that he he had wanted, uh, there was someone, and, and she had said, no, I have to wash your feet. And he said, well, it could go both ways. And that's how they handled that. Anybody else an experience of foot washing before? Oh, Judy. 
Um, I'm remembering a time when um, my co-worker with Vacation Bible School in Alaska uh, went out. We went out to the village to, um, and it wasn't necessarily Good Friday or Monday Thursday, but we washed the feet of, of every, everybody took a turn. We got buckets, and that was drawing water out of the river. That was not from the tap. And Was um, this for medical purposes? No, it was a it was a oh this was a this, women's this, devotion weekend. Oh, okay, thank you. And we we washed their feet and we washed their hands and then we picked out all of the verses from the Bible that we could find about feet and hands, and it was very meaningful to those, to those ladies who didn't get their feet manicured and pedicured on a regular basis. I assure you. So um, that wasn't necessarily associated with Monday Thursday, but that was where the but it was part the custom of came from. I bet there's a bonding. That there happens. was definitely a bonding. No, I, I, yeah, yeah. I, yeah I did, I did. I've still got yeah. the places marked in my Bible. Wow. Wow. So that was one of those times you don't forget. So we are going to focus here on Monday, Thursday. Oh, stripping of the altar. Uh, we, we didn't list that in the practices. Any, anything that comes to you remembering stripping of the altar on a Monday, Thursday, before we get into our scripture for tonight? We still have half, more than half an hour to do that. Oh, Pastor, okay. You may as well just stay over here, Dave. Well, I think the tradition is is that Psalm 22 is read. Um, or sung. Our church, the, the beautiful tenor yeah, uh, organist would sing it, yeah. chant it. And then um, at the very end of that, when the altar was cleared, then there, the, uh, the loud noise that would symbolize the um, Did you do the, the closing tomb. of the book on Monday, Thursday? Yeah. yeah. Okay, we always had it on Good Friday, but I've heard it that it yeah. also can yeah. be done then. Yeah. The book is closed. Anybody else? Okay, so if you have a paddle on your table, someone on that table, grab that paddle and be ready because we've got some scripture that won't be on your handout that we just need read quickly. And it takes less time. Tara taught us that it takes le- We prayed for Tara and Todd this morning. I forgot to know. Because um, this is her first week at Redeemer in Fort Collins. So tonight we're going to go, all of us will go into John 13. I did not look it up in the Bibles. So if someone is in the NIV and if someone is in the ESV that we put out, can you say NIV, the page number, ESV, the page number? Which one? Yeah, John 13, we're going to read 1 to 17. But what page is it on? 1632 in NIV. What about in ESV for people who find it harder to find it? 900, thank you. Okay. Is that, oh, 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 the ESV. Good, the black ESV. So we're going to go to John 13, and we are going to start looking at this scene of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. One thing we want to know is the the context here. The book of John is often divided into the first 12 chapters, let's say, are the book of signs, Jesus revealing who he is by miraculous signs. At the very end of that book of signs, we see the raising of Lazarus from the dead, which almost becomes a foreshadowing or gets us ready for a resurrection from the dead of Jesus. We also 
then move into, at chapter 13, what's called the Book of Glory. And this is when we are headed toward the cross. We are in the upper room, and we are now at chapter 13 in John. And if someone would be willing with the microphone to read the first five verses, John 13, 1 to 5. And let's listen for Lenten themes, for time themes. Um, let's, let's hear what maybe, let, you know, the, we talk about one Catholic scholar and then a lot of other people uh, use his terminology that when, when the first believers, first post-New Testament believers received these Gospels, which Justin Martyr called the memoirs of the apostles, he says that they received them and would read about the Jesus then and the Jesus now. And so they would read a story about what had happened in Jesus' time and begin to to process what did it mean for Jesus now in their midst. They were sharing bread and wine around a table. And and so what did that mean? So would someone be willing to read, and we'll hear about the Jesus then and try to apply it as the Jesus now. Was it Brenda? Okay, thank you. John 13, 1 to 5. That's all we need right now. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper... The devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Acarius, the son of Simon, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things unto his hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Thank you, Brenda. Anything jump out at you? Anything? Anything that you hear there? Would you like to comment on, share with us, help us to see with new eyes and ears? See with new eyes and hear with new ears. Peter, David Peter's here. I get a sense of urgency. It says uh, Jesus realizes that uh, he's coming to the end, that his time is short, and um, he wants to show one last thing to his disciples. But again, out of the reading, I get a sense that he knows his time is getting short. He, He has to speed things up a little bit. Yeah, we even have the phrase the end in there, don't we? Yeah, yeah. Along with that, it just seems kind of like there, there's all these pieces of the puzzle that have come together um, towards the end. You know, having known, he knew that this was the time um, that he would depart. He had loved his own. He loved them to the end. During supper, it said the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot. It's like all these pieces that come together. Yeah, yeah. Who, who's got, what panel person has the um, John 2, 4? If you would just read, it's very brief. It's the wedding at Cana, 
Mary has come, his mother Mary has, oh, that's Brenda again, has come to Jesus and suggested something (laughs) that he'd solve the problem, the wine problem. Brenda? And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Who's got John 12, 20, this is longer, to 24? Oh, Sandra does. Okay. And the Galatians person, get ready. (laughs) All right. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Thank you. In the beginning of the Gospel of John, and for those 12 chapters, we have my hour has not yet come. Somebody else did the work, but says that seven times in the Gospel, that the the phrase, the hour or the time, for Jesus either has not come or has come. And and what Sandra read in chapter 12 now moves us to this book of glory from 13 on. And did you hear how these Greeks want to see Jesus? Okay, and the disciples shuffle around and, and make sure. And where does Jesus go with it? He says, my hour has come, and he gives a metaphor, or was it a simile? I can't remember. Just as like a, like a seed going into the ground. And dying. He goes into death talk. We also have at the very beginning of the chapter, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart, the the commentator I was reading said, 10 times in this gospel, John points out that Jewish calendar with feasts, 10 times. The story of God calendar gets mentioned seven times. Jesus Kairos time, this special time. And it is at this moment when those two times converge. The story of God in that Hebrew secular, cyclical, circular, cyclical calendar, his story. And now the moment that Jesus begins to move towards Thank you. Thank you. Oh, who's got Galatians 4? Is it 4, 4, and 5? I can't remember. Ah, oh, Peter does. Thank you. This, and this is later, Paul writing about the time that Jesus came. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem, redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Thank you, Peter. Anything else other than the time? And, of course, the end coming. The end is, you know, he loved them to the end. That's such a poignant. Oh, we've got Cynthia. (laughs) It just dawned on me or uh, just questioning, when did, and you may have answered this while I while I Or I may not know. Okay. But when did Passover become Lent? Oh, okay. 
yeah, talked a little bit last week, that for the first Christians, when, when they, okay, very soon after the New Testament, we have these Jewish Christians. In fact, we know that Paul was always wanting to get to Jew- Jerusalem for the Passover. So the first Christians in the New Testament wanted to celebrate Passover, wanted to mark Passover. But this was very important to them. Three festivals that Jewish males were supposed to hit be in Jerusalem. And we know that then a shift happened. At first, we, have, we read that at first, some, and this isn't in the Bible, this is in extra biblical writings, that often some of those Christians, we can never say this is what the Christians did because they're all around the Mediterranean different but some of them would stay up all night praying for their non-Christian Jewish brothers and sisters to come to know the Lord. Eventually, that, that with, within, within 100 years, I would say, absolutely, we have the beginning of seasons of repentance preceding Easter. You know, Paul calls Jesus the Paschal lamb that has been sacrificed for us. So we have a separation from Passover to Easter, but, and there were big arguments about that calendar and when to celebrate, but they be, the early Christians began to focus on Easter with this Paschal lamb sacrifice, because they're somewhat in sync, at least if you're in John's calendar. And then we know that uh, there were pilgrimages to apostles' tombs, and people would make these pilgrimages and celebrate a Eucharist there. And eventually, and eventually, we're talking now about 300 years, that we eventually get to somewhere between 1 and 40-some and be days of, East, uh, of Lent, or even as Egeria, that, that she lives right, she's writing right around 400 A.D. It's either the couple years right before or a couple years right after. She's from either Spain or France. We looked at her last week, and, and she writes that she's in Jerusalem during Lent, or dur- yeah, during Lent, and she writes that here they have eight weeks of Lent. And uh, or did she say we have eight weeks and they have six weeks? I can't remember. But that, but by that point, we know, yeah, it's a capital. Well, probably didn't put a capital. But yes, yes, called Lent. Yeah, very early, very early. That's a good question, though. Thank you. I don't even remember where we were. John. No, that's good. I, we still have time. I have a book of uh, devotional readings by, written by a Messianic Jew, oh. and he explained that the paschal lamb that the priests sacrificed were raised in Bethlehem, and then he connects that to the birth of Jesus, who ultimately became the sacrificial lamb himself. So the Bible is full of things like that that we don't even think about when we're reading it. Yeah, yeah. So many, so many of those markers of time that will line up during Holy Week especially. Let's get back into this text here. What about Jesus, that that moment, putting the towel on? Yeah, Cynthia wants to talk. Yeah. He was showing his humility. No one else offered. Yeah. 
And I think the washing of the feet, wouldn't it normally have been at the beginning versus when he did it? Yes, you would, you would do that coming into the home. Coming, the servant would do that. But yes. no one did it. And there was, so he decided that he was going to do it. Mm-hmm. And he, the, the, the verb is laid aside or set aside his garment and put the towel on, taking on the garb of a servant, taking off his teacher robes, putting on the garb of a servant. And there's some interesting, one of the commentators pointed out that the very same verb to lay aside his clothing is, who, who's got John 10, and then there are four or five verses, John 10, 11. So, oh, Jim, thank you. If you would read, it's John 10, 11, then 15, then 17 to 18. And if you would just pause to kind of let sink in after each of those verses, what's happened? But it's going to be the same verb to lay down. Here's John 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Just as the father knows me and I know the father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Thank you, Jim. Commentator I was reading said, those who are reading in the original language, they're getting John's memoir and first they hear that jesus is going to lay down his life and now as cynthia points out he takes off his clothing lays it aside and it is an act of humility but it's the same verb with an indication that his servanthood leads to giving up his life and a humility a call to be an example to the disciples of what, of what he is talking about, of what he is showing in this action. And, of course, I had to think about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, okay? Um, in the chapter, in his, he didn't call it the cost of discipleship. He called it just plain old disciple. He didn't call it plain old. Discipleship. The publishers wanted the cost of discipleship, I guess, because they thought it would sell better. But he... He considers what he writes to be just regular old discipleship. In the chapter on discipleship and the cross, the cross is laid on every Christian. And I think if we, if we look at this scene and remember the foot washing and the laying aside of the garments and the in our ears laying down his life for the sheep, the cross is laid on every Christian. A couple of sentences later, a, a line you've probably heard before. When Christ calls a man or a man or woman. He bids him come and die. When Christ calls a woman, he bids her come and die. And that's what this scene then, Cynthia, that you're talking about, this humility. And you know, before that, Bonhoeffer talks about cheap grace and costly grace. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring 
repentance. That's what this whole season of Lent is about, repentance. And he goes on to say, you know, costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. Lots of things. Costly grace is what what you seek and ask and knock for. But such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, to follow down that path of servanthood that might mean giving up my life for another. And it's grace, remember, it's costly because it calls us to follow. It's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus. Jesus, who's just said, which you pointed out, you know, he loved them to the end. That's where we are. That's where we are in this scripture. Let's go on and read the rest of the little vignette quickly. I think I I will pick it up here at verse 6. Chapter 13, verse 6. So Jesus has got the towel. He starts to wash feet. He came to Simon. I'm going to read it from here because it's bigger print. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing. But later you will understand. No, Peter says, you'll never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. Then Lord Peter said, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. Parenthetically. Judas, that was why he had said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes. He puts on back on his teacher, master, Lord, rabbi clothes and begins to explain. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who has sent him. And and when they get to be called apostles, that is what that word means, messenger. It is a, a... a secular term, apostle just met messenger. I'm coming with the message from the other guy, getting paid to do it. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So what do you hear? What do you hear here? First of all, Peter. So typical of Peter. Cynthia wants to say something, Dave. <laughs> She wants to laugh <laughs> first. Do you don't want to say anything? Yeah, sure you do. <laughs> it's just so strong. The the message. Hold it up a little bit more. Your mic. The ex- it's just so strong showing the example of following the example. Yeah. He, he's just repeating that over and over and. Unless you go forward in showing the humility and the servanthood, 
you're just nothing. It's just kind of pointless, isn't mm. it? Am I thinking straight? Am I? I'm asking you if I'm no, thinking no, straight. No, no, <laughs> no. Tell me why you say it's pointless. Tell us. What do you mean? For the disciples, you mean, or for, for Jesus? Uh, no, for for the disciples. If they go around and say that they're for Christ, this is our faith, this is who we follow, but yet they don't show the same humility that the Savior has shown them. Mm. He's, he has totally stepped out of his role as God and then teacher. Mm-hmm to try to teach them. Mm -hmm. And if they don't do that, even though they, well, it's like when Peter says, no, Lord, I can't do, I'm not going to betray him. He does. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Interesting that you say he stepped out of his, yeah, Peter, go ahead. No, no. He stepped out of that role. And well, uh, out of the Godhead at that yeah. moment. Go ahead, Peter. Uh, humility. Yes. But, um, I think uh, the greater example is the extent of love here. He did something that nobody wanted to do. Right. <laughs> nobody would, would wash another person's feet. That's what a slave does. Right. But he showed that we've been talking love, gentlemen. You know, and <laughs> we go around and we say we love you. We do this out of love. He says this is truly, you know, the, the sacrifice of love. You, you you have to be able to to put no boundary on the love. You can't say I love you, but mm. you know, mm. yeah. The the part that catches me though, and it's it's clear as mud, is when he <laughs> says when when he says you're not going to wash my feet, and Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. I I I, I can't. Uh, reconcile that commentators say that are looking back and saying he's pointing to baptism that in that there are there are references undercurrents of the baptismal life and so a baptized person is identified with and with jesus and part of those who have now been given the righteousness of christ in the great exchange you know him taking our sins he gives us his righteousness and so he's saying, I, I'm doing this for you, but I consider you clean. You're going, you know, you are part of the fellowship. Does that make sense, Pastor? Did you want to, oh, can we hand it? Oh, you want to say something else and then we'll give it to Pastor? <laughs> Week four of the Red Letter Challenge, serving. Go ahead, Peter. What did you want to respond? It still doesn't make sense. Okay. Uh, it's, it's just one it's, of those mysteries it's of, certainly, of, of yeah. something he says that, you know, we can say, yeah, it's it's baptism. Well, <laughs> that may be stretching, looking for something okay. for it to me. Um, I, I just have to take it that he said it, and Peter, put your feet out. <laughs> Kevin wants to say something, and then we're going to move to the end of this. Thank you. From... Uh, spending his first night uh, after birth in a feeding trough for animals mm -hmm. to walking about um, and, and, and exhorting people 
to um, this night where he's showing service to his servants to the final service and the greatest service he will give us on the cross. Um, his life is a life of service, and in his weakness, God is strong. And and that, just Cynthia, just a second, because we're going to wrap it up. Um, the, the idea of Christ's humiliation, Luther says, his Jesus' state of humiliation is when he gives up his heavenly, his godly powers, like in Philippians 2, 5 to 11. And, and what we have here, John McDermott at the earlier session had said, Jesus is talking all weird to them because now, now he's in, entered into his Kairos moment and nothing's making sense to them because they're still down on the daily plan stuff. And, and so we have some dissonance. Cynthia, one last comment. Yeah. You know, sometimes humility is accepting something from someone else. Yes. So unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Mm. If all you're ever willing to do is thinking that you're giving me something, that you're so great, mm-hmm. you're not that great until you let me do for you. Isn't that something we often say? You need to, we need, you know, a person needs to receive as well as to give. We are running out of time, and we want to be good stewards of that time. Uh, let's, when we get to, well, I'm going to get the Bible here. Just hear the words from John 13, 31 to 33, which is where, where we were headed. Uh, when, when, when Judas Iscariot leaves, Verse 31, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. And now the Maundy part of Maundy Thursday. A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. As we look at the, the rites, the rituals that are on this first page, uh, just let me tell you first. The second page has uh, you know, a layout of what a, a a three-hour service might look like if you wanted to look at that in this time before before Lent starts. It's got some indication of some things that a that a um, a Holy Saturday might be comprised of, which it might be comprised. And then we had six weeks on heavens, yes, hell, no. But I thought I would give us the scriptural basis for what we get in the Apostles' Creed that Jesus descended into hell, and the Eastern Church focuses on that, and there are some interesting concepts there, but we don't have time for that. But if you look at this, this block here and look at the, the rites, the rituals, rituals are repeated actions linked to words. They're heavy with meaning. They, are, they might be an individual's rituals. They might be communal. For us, these 
rituals, these practices that we go through, imposition of ashes, each one of these is calling us into a season of repentance, a communal focus. The early church used Lent as the time of communal repentance. For catechumens, kids going to confirmation class, CDT, before a baptism is what in the early church it would be. And then Eucharist catechumens would fast and their sponsors would fast. Maybe for Lent, it is us desiring renewal, a, a, a new, a renewal in that walk of faith. Maybe it's backsliders returning, all different categories of people within a community of faith, and we're called into this. And, and as much as, say, the imposition of ashes, that reminder that I'm dust and to dust I'll return, I'm dust and to dust I'll return because of my sin, that was the consequence of sin, was death, that ritual not only identifies me as one of Jesus' disciples, as one of Jesus' own, but it also shapes me. Every time I look in the mirror, I brush my hand against it and see the ashes. Something happens within us when we go through rituals, rites, traditions that not only identify us as part of the community, but also shape us as individuals and shape us as a community of faith. And that's why we take the time to enter into the story of God calendar at Lent to consider ways to deepen the relationship with Christ. So I invite you into that. I invite you to, to, to see Jesus as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. That's, that's, the, that's the Jesus that the earliest church, the first 300 years, they did not have crosses in their artwork. It's only because Helen or Helena, whatever, Constantine's mom found peace of the cross. And now we all talked about the cross. Paul wrote about the cross. But that's when the cross began to enter into Christian artwork. Before, it was the rescuer, the great rescuer who rescues me and you. From sin. So, with the idea that Lent is a time of repentance, turning around like the, the psalm we prayed, I thought we would use this classic prayer. It's in the Book of Common Prayer, it's in all of our Lutheran hymnals. It is a prayer, and I just want you to hear before we pray it O oh God, whose glory it is always to have mercy. That's how it starts, identifying God as the one whose glory comes in inviting us into his glorification that was the cross. So let's pray this together. Oh God, whose glory it is always to have mercy, be gracious to all who have gone astray from your ways and bring them again with penitent hearts and steadfast faith to embrace and hold fast the unchangeable truth of your word, Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. See you next week, Ash Wednesday. 
Thank you for listening to the King of Glory Church Education Podcast. Our mission is to connect to God and His people, grow in faith and love, and live through service and sharing. Visit us on the web at kogva.org. 